Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. President Biden and President Trump make dueling trips to Texas and the U.S.-Mexico border as they each try to frame the immigration issue for the 2024 election. Plus, Congress again averts a government shutdown, but only by kicking the deadline into March. Welcome, I'm Kyle Peterson with The Wall Street Journal. We're joined today by my colleague, editorial board member Kate Batchelder Odell. Happy Friday to you, Kate. Thanks for having me, Kyle. So the news this week from Gallup polling is immigration surges to top of most important problem lists. The first time that has been the case since 2019, 28% of Americans now say that immigration is the most important problem facing the country. Number two is government. And by the way, I love that the polling question just asks, what's the most important problem? And one of the choices is the government, but that's number two. Then the economy with 12% and inflation with 11%. But don't say that our political leaders are not responsive because on Thursday, President Trump was in Eagle Pass, Texas, and President Biden was in Brownsville, Texas. Let's listen to clips of a bit of what each of them said. Here is first President Trump. We had catch and release in Mexico. We had catch before that. It was catch and release a criminal and they released him in the United States. We had no more catch and release. Our catch and release was we released him in Mexico. And if you broke the law, we caught you, we deported you, or we did something else. But we were doing a great job, and uh, that's where it stood, and then we had an election. And here is President Biden. I understand my predecessors in Eagle Pass today. So here's what I would say to Mr. Trump. Instead of playing politics with this issue, instead of telling members of Congress to block this legislation, join me, or I'll join you, in telling the Congress to pass this bipartisan border security bill. We can do it together. You know and I know it's the toughest, most efficient, most effective border security bill this country has ever seen. So instead of playing politics with the issue, why don't we just get together and get it done? An interesting contrast there eight months out from the election. Kate, what do you make of the framing that each of them are taking? I got a kick a little bit out of President Biden saying, join me or I'll join you. As if uh, eight months before voters go to pick the next president, we're going to see the two of them marching up to Capitol Hill hand in hand to try to get this bill passed. I mean, I think Biden going to the border at all right now is in some sense a concession to political reality in those polls that you just mentioned, where this issue has really overtaken a lot of others, including the economy, which nobody seems to think is particularly sparkling right now, besides the Biden administration, who's been trying to pitch that. So I think this is a concession to that reality, but just by him going there. And it's an issue where Trump has some remaining credibility with at least some subsection of Republican primary voters, because whatever you think about his policy and his rhetoric about it, it's been his defining issue for years. So I think voters are more likely to take Trump seriously at the border than they are Biden, who's going down there after having been in charge for several years now and seems to be only belatedly discovering that there's a real problem both on the merits and the politics. But that said, you really have to hand it to Trump in his ability to make unforced errors because the bipartisan border bill that came through Congress, Biden now gets to lean on President Trump having killed that and having scared Republicans away from it. So it really bought him something of an out on one of his most vulnerable issues. 
it will be interesting to see how much Biden is able to use that in the coming election. But I generally agree with what you've said there. And it was notable to me, President Trump was at the border again in Eagle Pass. He was talking about the Remain in Mexico policy that Biden rescinded. And fair enough, I think that's that's fine political territory, but you can't just wave a magic wand and bring Remain in Mexico back. You have to get the agreement of the government of Mexico, which might not be inclined to go along with this any longer. And in any event, the Remain in Mexico policy was kind of exporting problems with the U.S. asylum system instead of fixing them. And one of the advantages of this bill that was negotiated in the Senate by James Langford from Oklahoma was actually raising the bar for claiming asylum and getting into that system in the first place. So it had some provisions that were trying to clean up the problem at the root of it. And I did not hear any real proposals from President Trump at the border about how he intends to try to deal with this crisis and what can be done in the short term. He spent a lot of time lauding Texas for the steps that it has taken to step into the breach, as it were, Texas Governor Greg Abbott was there with him. But notable that on the same day they were at the border, a federal judge in Austin issued a ruling blocking for now a Texas law that had been passed in order to help Texas enforce immigration rules in the stead of the federal government. And so there was a Texas law called SB4. It has a provision creating a state crime for non-citizens to cross the border into Texas. And then it would allow state judges to issue orders that require people to exit the country. And one of the things that Texas had used to justify this was the provision in the U.S. Constitution that says that states have a right of self-defense if they are, quote unquote, invaded. And here is the response from federal judge David Ezra. He says, First, the Supremacy Clause and Supreme Court precedent affirm that states may not exercise immigration power. Second, SB4 conflicts with key provisions of federal immigration law. Third, surges in immigration do not constitute an invasion. And then he says to allow Texas to supersede federal directives would amount to nullification of federal law and authority, a notion that is antithetical to the Constitution and has been unequivocally rejected by federal courts since the Civil War. And so a pretty sweeping order, they're blocking enforcement of the Texas law. And so, Kate, the way that I read that is President Trump is going down to the border and he's lauding Governor Greg Abbott for taking steps to try to stop migration. And some of those steps, I should say, are probably not blocked by this order, including Texas's efforts to set up razor wire and so forth in places that are frequently crossed. But I'm still looking for a solution other than saying, Congress, you write immigration law, do your job. Right. I mean, I think you're right to really zero in on the asylum standards and how they need to be changed. And keep in mind, when President Trump was in office, he suggested in a speech that Congress really needed to fix these standards because right now someone can come to the border, claim asylum, and because there's such a backlog in cases, they can be released into the interior for years and years before their hearing. And so to the point about border security and putting up razor wire, well, even if you built a full Donald Trump wall, that is only so helpful if you can walk up to a border guard and claim asylum. So you need to strengthen these standards so that you try to ferret out more quickly who the legitimate asylum claims are. And the bipartisan border bill really did make an attempt to do that. For instance, in these initial screenings, finding out things like, could you have moved to a different part of your own country as opposed to coming to the United States and been safe from persecution there? So that is what has to be fixed, or otherwise we're going to continue to see these 
uh, scenes at the border. I mean, keep in mind, Trump did do some other things at the border other than this, but there was chaos under his term as well. And so you need to fix the underlying incentives if you want to change it. And again, on the Texas issue, obviously there's a tremendous amount of sympathy for Governor Abbott and what he's trying to deal with down there at the border, uh, which he's had very little help from the Biden administration. But at the same time, wading into trying to preempt federal immigration laws, I think was a mistake. So you do need really, like you said, an action from from Congress to deal with the problem. But yet, as it becomes more obvious that we need that, it's becoming further and further out of reach for lawmakers to actually get done. Hang tight. We'll be right back in a moment. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point on the price-performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed, and Haiku is the fastest and lowest cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high volume, high speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to keep them at the frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. Welcome back. My read of the politics here, at least on the Republican side of the aisle, is that President Trump has decided he doesn't want this bill passed in part because he doesn't want the border to be fixed before the November election. He wants to keep running on the Biden border chaos all the way through what he hopes will be his reelection. But it's interesting because the pressure, I think, to do something to deal with this problem, which is facing those border states every day, is not going to go away. So that's what I think explains all of these uh, attempts by many Republicans to act as if the Lankford bill is some sort of secret plan to let more migrants into the country, which it definitively is not. And I don't understand if they see flaws in it, why they wouldn't try to amend the bill, offer other proposals and really try to get something passed. And maybe that is still where we are headed because the pressure on these border states is not going to go away this, these eight months that we have until the election. And so maybe there's room for something to be put in one of these bills for Republicans to strengthen the Langford bill in some ways, for some sort of compromise to still emerge, particularly if President Biden continues to see this as a real political vulnerability. And notable to me, Kate, some reporting by Fox News's Chad Pergram. Here is what he's saying on Twitter. Dem Pennsylvania Senator Fetterman says he is for most of H.R. 2, except portion which ends DACA. That's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And H.R. 2 is the border legislation that was written only by Republicans and is sort of their dream legislation. And if Fetterman is saying that he's willing to vote for some of those provisions, then maybe we need some sort of new negotiation. Maybe the Langford bill can be improved in ways and there's still an opportunity to get something passed to deal with the problem. I'd like to think you're right with that optimistic case. I mean, the asterisk Fetterman is giving with DACA is quite a large one. That intends to be a pretty big Republican priority. Not likely to be a lot of movement there, among, especially among the more restrictionist side of the Republican Party on immigration. And you also, Fetterman is one vote. Uh, there were no Democrats that signed on to H.R. 2 in the House. And the idea that suddenly the Senate would be able to get, you know, nearly a dozen strikes me as pretty illusory, especially after um, Democrats, rightly or not, think that they have some leverage on Republicans, given that Republicans were the ones who torpedoed this bipartisan bill written by James Lankford, who is not 
a rhino, a Republican in name only, or not a squish, and visited the border dozens of times trying to learn about these issues and produce something substantive. I think that's given Democrats the belief that they have the upper hand there. But I think that is also a risky proposition in that there is a real incentive for both parties to try to continue to get something done on this. I mean, it's not exclusively a, a border state problem by any stretch. And you have this case this week in Georgia, a young woman getting murdered while running in broad daylight in a seemingly random act of violence by someone who appears to have been let into the country on parole. And that's an authority that the Biden administration has used to wave people into the country who otherwise wouldn't be able to be here. And the Democratic response to this seems to have been, well, these are statistically unlikely cases and they don't characterize the larger immigrant population. And while that might be true, they leave a huge political impression on voters and they make folks think that they're not safe wherever they live and that the border crisis has taken on a larger character than just merely legal immigration versus illegal immigration. It's it's taken on a real national security realm that they can't avoid. So I think that may have some political salience in the next few months, even though there is some real headwinds to getting a deal. Let's turn to the broader troubles of passing much of anything in this Congress. And this week, there was another deadline for a government funding bill and the threat of a government shutdown that thankfully has been averted. So Congress passed now legislation to kick those funding deadlines. Half of the appropriations bills are now due on March 8th, and the other half are due on March 22nd. Here is uh, what House Speaker Mike Johnson said, quote, the appropriations process is ugly. Democracy is ugly. This is the way it works every year always has, except that we instituted some innovations. We broke the omnibus fever. We're trying to turn the aircraft carrier back to real budgeting and spending reform, unquote. So, Kate, I I mean, I guess a optimistic take here is that maybe Republicans have learned the lessons of previous government shutdowns, which to my eye was that they don't do a whole lot of good, that in the past, Republicans, um, hardliners have wanted deeper cuts or more policy riders or some sort of changes in the law. And we ended up with a government shutdown and they didn't get what they wanted and they got blamed. And by the way, my understanding is that the federal staff, when they get furloughed on on a shutdown, they get the back pay eventually for that time anyway. And so it's not as if you're really saving any money doing the shutdown in the first place if the savings is what you're after. So I guess that's the optimistic take. Kate, on the other hand, we are now pretty far into this fiscal year. So what's your read of what this means? Are we really going to eventually avoid that final shutdown or are we going to get a full year continuing resolution? Or is this really the kind of change to the budgeting process that Speaker Johnson is lauding there? Well, Kyle, if you'll let me have a little fun with Speaker Johnson's metaphor, um, aircraft carriers have to turn in the right direction for pilots to land. And if you call up and say, we'll try to turn this thing around, I'm not sure that would be a reassuring answer to the people relying on it. So that just made me laugh as a little metaphor to Congress's troubles. I do think here it is Somewhat good news that they've managed to get six of the bills sort of ironed out, at least at a conceptual level, though I'd mentioned that some of these bills that have some level of agreement on them are things like agriculture, justice, interior. They tend to be a little less difficult than some ones that are outstanding and move to March 22nd. And those I'm thinking of are defense, labor, homeland security. So maybe splitting up these deadlines will be helpful. That has been Johnson's theory all along, though, if we end up with instead of one omnibus where you pass all 12 spending bills and this giant measure and instead you just get two, six 
spending bills. I'm not sure how much of an improvement um, the public will view that to be, though perhaps I guess is at least a step in the right direction. And I still think there's a lot of risk here that a lot of Republicans want to go to a stopgap measure called a continuing resolution for the rest of the year. And I think there are some risks contained in that strategy. And I, I don't think they're out of the woods yet on getting full year appropriations for the government. Meantime, still pressure also on Speaker Johnson to allow some kind of vote on a bill to provide funding for American allies, including Ukraine and Taiwan and Israel. Kate, there's been now a new bill floated, a potential piece of legislation that would go at this question in a different direction. Can you give us a sense of of what that is? And does that have any prospect of getting on the floor with or without Speaker Johnson's support, I suppose? So the bill that was introduced by Brian Fitzpatrick, a Republican from Pennsylvania, along with a couple others, Jared Golden, a Democrat from Maine. Um, So it's bipartisan. And what it tries to do is basically strip down the Senate bill to lethal aid only to Ukraine, which is, in theory, has more salience with Republicans who are skeptical of U.S. support for Ukraine. So it cuts out things like direct budget support, which has been villainized as, you know, we're just paying pensions and bureaucrats, salaries and things. And so that's really toxic with to strip some of that stuff out. I would say I'm optimistic that Ukraine funding will get done. I don't know that that will be the vehicle, the Fitzpatrick bill that is a compromise. But I think it's a pretty clear signal in the conference that the support for Ukraine is there and that Johnson probably can't avoid this test of his leadership, even if he'd like to. It's one thing to try to ignore the Senate bill, but when you have your own members who are clamoring for a vote, and when you're quite close to having the majority of the conference support Ukraine, of the Republican conference still support Ukraine, even though Republican support is decreasing and has decreased over time, I think it gets done one way or the other. And if I could give you a quick reason why I'm optimistic, it was when you study Trump closely, He did go hard after the provisions of the border deal, but the hope is that even though all these things he's saying in public about letting Russia do whatever he wants and that his advisors are arguing to him that if he wants to do a deal in Ukraine and set aside whether that's realistic or not, if he wants to do a deal in Ukraine, he is going to need leverage from the Ukrainians. And the Ukrainians right now are in a difficult spot. They're rationing ammunition. They're slowly losing drips of territory to Russia. And they're not in a position to drive a hard bargain at a negotiating table. So the argument to Trump might be, well, you should let this aid to Ukraine go through uh, to put your own self in a stronger position in January to uh, do what you'd like to do on your own Ukraine policy. So I think there's some chance there that Trump doesn't become a huge impediment to Ukraine aid passing. I think he's certainly exploiting the cynicism against Biden and the public frustration that Biden doesn't seem to have a strategy in Ukraine or a plan for how the U.S. is going to achieve victory. But I do think that uh, sort of counsels some cautious optimism that aid to Ukraine will, in one form or another, whether that be this Fitzpatrick bill, the Senate bill, a discharge petition, a procedural maneuver that allows members to go around the speaker. I think that all those factors counsel that eventually, one way or the other, it gets done. Hang tight. We'll be right back after one more. AI may be the most important new computer technology ever, but AI needs a lot of processing speed, and that gets expensive fast. Upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is the single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. Do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic. Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash wallstreet, oracle.com slash wallstreet. Break. 
Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker. Play the Opinion Potomac Watch podcast. From the Opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Welcome back. Before the break, Kate mentioned a discharge petition, and that's the other interesting aspect of this, because that's a procedure by which 218 members of the House or a majority can bring something to the floor without the speaker's consent. They can go around the speaker. And especially given the very narrow majority held by House Republicans, which just got narrower after the election of Tom Suozzi in that Long Island special election last month, it wouldn't take very many Republicans to decide to break party discipline and, and sign a discharge petition with some Democrats and get that piece of legislation on the floor. And so that's the other thing that I think is interesting to think about, Kate, here is if you are Speaker Johnson, would you rather have that happen? Or if that looks like it might happen, would you rather just bring the piece of legislation to the floor yourself as a matter of not weakening your position as speaker and your and your hold on the gavel. And it is interesting. We are still, I, I think, in a bit of a trial period with Speaker Mike Johnson, who, remember, was a consensus choice after the failure of other candidates and after the dethroning of Speaker Kevin McCarthy. And if you read the political press, a lot of quotes on the record or off the record by other Republican members who seem to not be convinced that he is providing the kind of leadership that the House GOP needs right now. Right. So the obvious concern for Speaker Johnson is that if he brings up Ukraine aid for a vote of conscience, that um, the same members who defenestrated Kevin McCarthy will try to throw him overboard, too. But I don't think you can last in that job if you're kind of stuck doing it in fear of losing it. And so I think there's a real argument for Johnson to move Ukraine on his own terms and not be forced into something like a discharge petition that goes around him, which could weaken his hold on his conference anyway and lead to the same outcome. And so I think there is an argument for, first of all, building support for a position in the conference. Like I said, about half of Republicans in the House still support Ukraine aid. And again, if you were to try to figure out what you could get most of the conference to support of, even if that's more, like I said, the more lethal aid and less of some of these other items that really turn Republicans away from Ukraine funding, if you could get build a, a somewhat durable majority of the conference for that position and then bring it to the floor with most of the conference supporting it, I think he's got a pretty compelling case to do so. But that would require, of course, developing that consensus and ultimately staring down those in the conference who are trying to wield an assassin's veto over everything the House does. But I do think you're seeing this in these recent weeks, frustration really growing among all different parts of the House GOP conference that nothing is really able to get done because of the paralysis that they're currently living under. And so eventually that just can't be sustained. And I think it would reflect well on Johnson and might even increase his respect in the conference if he does decide, you know, no, I'm going to draw a line. We're going to do something on this Ukraine funding, something that my conference and broadly I can get support for, and I'm going to move it on my own terms. I think that might show strength as opposed to trying to feel out exactly what he can get away with without getting thrown overboard. One final piece of political machination is the Democrats would have a vote also on whether to dethrone Speaker Johnson. And interesting this week, the Democratic leader in the House, Hakeem Jeffries, said this. 
It does seem to me, based on informal conversations, that were Speaker Johnson to do the right thing relative to meeting the significant national security needs of the American people by putting it on the floor for an up or down vote, there will be a reasonable number of people in the House Democratic Caucus who will take the position that he should not fall as a result, unquote. So, Kate, that is also a, a fascinating bit here. On the other hand, if you are the Speaker of the Republican House, I don't know that it would be a comfortable position to remain the Speaker of the Republican House if you don't have the support of a majority of Republicans in the House either. And so part of this is just a function of the slenderness, the historical slenderness of the Republican majority in the House. But it is a difficult position to be in. Obviously, it was for Kevin McCarthy. Obviously, it still is for Speaker Mike Johnson, because the way to get a bigger majority is to win elections. And it's difficult to win elections if you can't show the voters in these swing districts, some of which were won by President Biden, that you're capable of passing the funding bills, keeping the government open, dealing with the kind of problems that the nation faces. Right. I mean, Speaker Johnson does not want to have to rely on the tender mercies of Democratic House leadership to stay in power. And I, they will certainly extract something for the price of their propping him up. I think the idea that they would do it out of the goodness of their heart is potentially not that credible at this juncture. But I also think, again, the motion to vacate and Kevin McCarthy, uh, there, were, there was all this frustration with Kevin McCarthy, which I think was personally very unfair to him. But it was all sort of centered on him personally and all these grievances that this group had. This idea that the politics may have changed, though, for this small group of bomb throwers who like to throw out speakers. Remember, the House last time entered kind of weeks of chaos, coming up with a new candidate to run the conference. And then they emerged with Speaker Johnson, who I think has endeared himself to the public by being an affable, patriotic guy and has a happy warrior spirit. So the idea now that the same group of Republicans will merely decide that he, too, is insufficiently conservative or a sellout or a rhino, I mean, these things become less credible the more times that you claim them. And so I think, too, you have to think that perhaps the politics will not be the same if Republicans try to just defenestrate Mike Johnson after he signed up to take this job. It's not just like they might get away with it again with um, McCarthy. So I think that also counsels him bringing up bills and showing a degree of leadership that will strengthen him and not make him weaker. Thank you, Kate. And thank you all for listening. You can email us at pwpodcast at wsj.com. If you like the show, please hit that subscribe button and we'll be back next week with another edition of Potomac Watch. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.